This morning the title is The Prophets, The Angels, and the Son. And we're going to look at the first three, the first three verses. Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's writing to these Hebrew believers. And so when he talks about our fathers, he means like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. But in these last days, so long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, which seem to uh, have started with the coming of Christ, the way he talks about these last days, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God's nature, not just some abilities, some powers, um, capacity to work miracles, but his, his, his very nature, his essence, what he is, is God. God's nature. And he, this is Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, and that's speaking of his work on the cross... So then he rises from the dead. The book of Hebrews, surprisingly, says very little about the resurrection of Jesus. There's one reference to the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 13. I mean, the writer certainly knows and believes in the resurrection, but his emphasis isn't on the resurrection. It's on the priestly ministry of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. After making purification for our sins, and even that word purification is an Old Testament-sounding kind of word, he sat down at the right hand, after he's ascended, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on, on high. Let's pray together. We love, Lord, to come to your word as, as a key element in our worship. That our minds are not just inspired, but they're informed and enlightened as your Holy Spirit comes and takes these words off the printed page and works in our hearts. The Holy Spirit who inspired these words breathes into our souls and oh how we need you to do that this day. It is good for us to quiet our hearts around your word. It's a, a clangy, noisy, busy world, void of truth, And so we come just to sit at your feet. 
I don't do this very often, church. Just, would you just sing this? Sing this with me, just our voices. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now, and I will praise him. I will praise him, praise the Lamb for sinners slain. Give him glory, all ye people, for his blood can wash away each Give him glory, all you people. Give him glory, all ye people. For his blood can wash away each stain. Praise be to your name. And so attend your word to our hearts. Now I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We took time last week to outline uh, six events, a chain of events behind the shaping of the tense relationship between Judaism and the birth of the church. It is uh, hard for us to imagine the the, uh, blunt force of the gospel on Jews devoted to the Old Covenant. True enough, the Old Testament, as our text will remind us today, it promised and prepared for the coming of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, but but not the kind of Messiah many Jewish worshipers were longing for and expecting. And so that resistance to the gospel is precisely what the epistle to the Hebrews is addressing. And, And you sense that. It's the explanation for the the, uh, quick dive that our writer makes into the text. There's no greeting. There's no introduction. There's no preamble. The, The theme of the whole letter just explodes in that very first sentence of the first chapter. So Christ... He is the key to understanding the Old Covenant. That's the point. And so our, our letters, the whole epistle to the Hebrew, our letters' first three sentences provide the outline of, of the book. Christ is a superior revelation to all that has preceded him. We're going to look at that. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all that there is. We're going to look at that. 
and he is the full revelation. He's the full revelation of God's glory among us and the only one who can, who can purify sinners from their sins. That's where we're going this morning. So point number one. God has spoken in many ways because he is a speaking God. Long ago, many times, many ways, but here it is, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is a good starting point for our writer. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish disciples, Jewish believers. And the first thing he needs to say is that God had, in fact, spoken through those Jewish prophets. He's, he's letting them know he agrees. He's not contradicting their prophets. How could he? God spoke through their prophets and through their fathers. There's nothing untrue in those Old Testament texts. We need to remind ourselves of that. They are in every way, to this very day, they are in every way God's infallible word. And no one should overlook this basic point. Our God, our God is a speaking God. Our God communicates. Our God reveals and the reason that matters is we would have no way of knowing anything about him if he didn't reveal himself. God initiates his self-disclosure. I mean, we could speculate about God. We're designed for God's search. But we can't find him on our own. We, we can certainly create idols, we can and we do do that, but those gods are more or less just extensions of ourselves. We're created with the need to worship, and we do worship. We either worship God or we worship something else. But we don't know the true object, the designed object of all our worship, unless God speaks unless God reveals. And this, our text says, God initiated a long time ago in the prophets of the Old Testament. And, and just to make a bit of application under this first point, what we need to know about God cannot be found just by looking inward. So knowledge of the true God can't be found in, in, in some God within or the divine spark of human potential or by contemplating our belly buttons or chanting some mantra. We meditate privately on the word, to be sure. At least we're supposed to. But this meditation is on God's external word, his revelation. His revelation isn't subjective. He, he can't be known just by repeating mantras or meditating on ethical principles. He, he speaks. Ours is a speaking God. Revelation comes into history. It's God bursting into our world from the outside. I mean, it happens partially in the common providence, the revelation we have of an intricately created world and universe. It happens partially in the 
inner planting of conscience, but it happens primarily through the written and recorded revelation of God's word. Our God reveals. Our God speaks. So point number two. The revelation of God through the prophets was, was both partial and it was layered over time. Long ago, sorry, that's the one I want. Long ago, at many times, so you have many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the Old Testament was written over a period of about 1,500 years. So when he says, long time, God was speaking all that time. Though all of it is true, it, it, the revelation of the Old Testament came in, in bits and pieces, and many ways would seem to be an understatement. Consider the ways. To Moses in a burning bush... Or the tablets of commandment written by the finger of God. Or to Abraham coming as a mysterious visitor, the Bible says. Or entering into a wrestling match with Jacob in the night. Or to Joshua as an angel with a drawn sword. Remember, Joshua says, whose side are you on? And and the guy says, "You, you you got it all wrong. It's not whose side I'm on, it's whose side are you on? To Balaam through a donkey. Many times in many ways. Elijah with a still small voice. Ezekiel, a wheel within a wheel. What's this all about? Now, all of those revelations, in many times, in many ways he spoke, our writer says. And all of those revelations are are true. Progressive Revelation doesn't move from less true to more true or from less divine to more divine. It's the content that progresses, not the truthfulness. The depth, the clarity progresses. Are you old enough to remember those those miracle cameras where you would take a picture of somebody and then it would go... And out the front of the camera, you know, you'd think the Martians had landed. This picture would pop out. Do you remember that? What happened to those wonderful cameras? Besides the fact that it was eight bucks a picture. (laughs) And then you would hold it up. And you just wait. And it looks kind of foggy. And it doesn't look like there's much there. And then lo and behold, it starts to get a little bit clearer. A little bit more definition. A little bit more sharpness. A little bit more color. And then you got a picture. Magic. That's a pretty good illustration of the unfolding revelation of God through the prophets. Just like that developing picture, had, it had nothing untrue in it. It was all picture. There was nothing that wasn't picture. But, the, but it, was, it was a picture 
developing. This is, this is the message our writer confirms with these Hebrew disciples. Their prophets were truly God's prophets. God was speaking truth, but it was still a developing truth. It wasn't finished yet. It lacked the full clarity of what was to come. Just one more important point, and it's a really important point. Our writer is not saying that God was evolving or developing throughout the Old Covenant. He's not morphing from a being of wrath into a more mature God of mercy and love. God is is constant and he's unchanging. So our author is not talking about God's being. He's talking about God's disclosure. He's saying God disclosed his mind by by the addition of one thing after another. Many times in many ways. He piled up details over long periods of history, and it progressed. That leads us to the third point. The coming and work of Jesus, the Christ, marks the fulfillment of all the revelation of the preceding prophets. But in these last days, it's a sequence term, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Those are the important words. These last days. They're they're like arrival words. They're destination words. They, They point to the end of a previous process. All the previous days were preparing for this end. The earlier periods were getting ready for this last period. First there were the previous days, and now we've reached the last days. This is the gospel era. This is the age reaching its apex. It'll reach its apex eventually with the return of the Messiah at the close of history. But our our writer who writes these Jewish disciples, he, he wants to emphasize that the former days have not been scrapped... It's not that they didn't matter, and it's not that they didn't count. It's that they have reached their intended goal. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He completes them. So so our writer in Hebrews, will stress that the goal never was a separate standing Jewish religion. That was never God's plan. The goal was the arrival of a promised Messiah. And with the coming of Jesus, the Christ, a final era, the last days, the time of fulfillment has been launched. This doesn't contradict the Old Testament prophets. This is what... This is what the Old Testament prophets were longing for. And we don't have to guess about that. The Bible tells us that in a great text. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation. That's where we are. This is you. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, your trust is in him. Salvation. Concerning this... Peter says, 
the prophets. So here's the same group. Who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time. Look at this. The spirit of Christ in them. Was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. This them is them. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. It It wasn't about their time. But you. In the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Those are really pointed, important words. They line up perfectly with the logic of our Hebrews text. The the key idea is Jesus is not to be thought of as just the last in a long string of prophets. In the Christ, the Messiah, a new age has been launched. God's final revelation has come. There will be no others. So the application of this doctrinal section is God's revelation in Christ Jesus simply cannot be missed. It's what the whole old covenant pointed to. Jesus, Abraham longed to see my day. It doesn't get clearer than that. It's what the Old Covenant is all about. If you miss this, you miss everything. You don't honor the Old Covenant by making it a standalone religion. You reject the Old Covenant when you don't look forward to what all of the Old Covenant was looking forward to and preparing the world for. Point number four. God the Son is the heir of all things because he is the creator of all things. You get that in that second verse, the last part of it. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed first heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so, and so you've, you've got created the world, looking backwards, and heir... Looking forwards. In one half sentence, that text covers both the future kingdom reign and the pre-incarnate creative work of the Son. The Apostle John will give you an even clearer picture than this. He says, all things were made through him. This is speaking of Christ, by the way, of Jesus Christ. All things were made through him... And without him was not anything made that was made. It's that last part. Without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through him seems to say it. Why does he have to say it twice? It seems like bad writing. But it isn't. John writes, John writes to counteract a common heresy... That the Father created the Son as a created being... ...and then the Son did the rest of his creative work. But John won't let that stand. 
if the Father created the Son, then it wouldn't be true to say, without him was not anything made that was made. Y'all, you see what I'm saying? Because the Son would have been made apart from the Son's creating work. And so John makes his point clear. Nothing exists. Nothing exists that the Son didn't create. Period. But there's an additional point being made in our Hebrews text. We see at once why the eternal creative right of the Son means the Son alone is the logical fulfillment of all the statutes, all the sacrifices, all the regulations, all the laws, all the observances of the Old Covenant. See, in his creative might, he predates all of those things. The content and terms of all previous revelation... They're all his in a totally unique sense. This is what gave Jesus the right to tell the religious leaders in his day. He said, remember he'd always do these miracles on the Sabbath and it was almost like it was on purpose he'd wait till the Sabbath? Over and over and over again. That's what they're after him about. More than anything else. You're doing this on the Sabbath. And finally Jesus looks at them. I would love to have been there. And he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What he means is, I made it. I made the Sabbath. This is my day. It's all about pointing to me. Eventually, they killed Jesus for saying that. More than anything else, they killed Jesus for saying that. And that's why our Hebrews text talks about the creative right of Christ. Because he's the creator of all things, the Son is also, it says, heir of all things in that second verse. That means everything is going to be restored in him. He will reign forever and ever. And of course, the writer's point is, you can't say this about any of the prophets who preceded him. You can't say this about Abraham. You can't say this about Moses. You can't say this about Ezekiel. You can't say this about any of the prophets. You can't say this about any of the angels. This is the son. He's the heir of everything. These last days, in these last days, God has spoken by his son. So these last days, inaugurated in the Christ, they will surely be consummated with the rightful heir on the throne of a new heaven and a new earth. He will recreate everything because he created it all in the first place. There will be a new creation. And the son knows how to create. The Christ came. That's what those Jewish prophets were preparing for. That's what they were longing for. He inaugurated the last days when he came. And the same Messiah will close these same days when he comes again. And he will reign forever and ever. He's the heir of all things. Five. The Son is God in every way. And he must be if he is to save and restore as the prophets predicted. 
He is the, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, do you hear glory, nature, and upholding the universe? The third phrase is, is perhaps the easiest to deal with. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And, and we're, pointed, we're pointed again to this idea of the sun in creation. But not just the original creation. He is also the power sustaining creation. And, and this sustaining work is done quite logically considering the Son is God, by the exact same means as the creation account in Genesis. It's the Son's word. Let there be, and there was. The Son's word, the word of his power. It keeps creation going, day by day by day. The things that scientists define as laws, mathematical principles, and forces, that's fine, but they're merely different labels for the word of his power. You're sitting here right now and you're not thinking about it, but you've got a little thing in here and it's pumping blood throughout your body. And the reason it's got another beat and another one and another one, how many more does it have? The reason it's beating right now, this text says, is the word of his power. That's why it got light today didn't stay dark. The sun is sustaining all of creation, minute by minute. That middle phrase, the exact imprint of his, God's, nature, that's the writer's way of, of re-emphasizing that the sun is God. He's not just like God, hence that emphasis on nature. There's, there's no distinction between the nature of God and the nature of the Christ. The, the likeness isn't approximate. The likeness is exact. I'm, I've got this all muddied up. Can you see that word right there? Exact. The exact imprint. Can't say that about Moses. Can't say that about Abraham. Scientology can't give that to you. Good night. It's that first phrase that I want to give some attention to. It doesn't get talked about a lot. And it makes clear why the divine identity of the Son is so important. He is the radiance, and then I said that word, the glory. The radiance of the glory of God... And there's a reason the subject of God's glory is introduced here. It's not an accident. It's very carefully planned. Because here's what we know to be true. Here's what I know to be true about me. And here's what I know to be true about you as we're gathered in this church this morning. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the, say it with me, 
glory of God. On our own, this is what we miss. God's glory. Lost it in the fall, the measure to which we had it. That, that sweet affinity for God that was once the joy of mankind in the original creation has been lost by sin. And over and over again, the New Testament speaks of fallen persons in their unredeemed state as enemies of God. It's the sad, sad story of glory lost. And this is surely on our writer's mind in that phrase. And I think the context will bear this out because... In the very same verse, the next major theme of the epistle is the purifying and reclaiming of fallen humanity through the one who is the radiance of the glory of God. And so 3b, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, so... Only the one... Only the one who radiates God's glory can restore God's glory. Only the one who worked the original creation can give birth to a new creation because he's a creator. What kind of creation? Glory. He ushers in glory. The glory lost in the fall, it can't be earned back. There aren't enough religious steps, laws, regulations. It can't be earned back. It can't be restored through the keeping of religious precepts. No moral instruction can accomplish it. And to the point of today's text, no prophet, no angel can offer it. The Son alone imparts God's glory to those who on their own fall so pathetically short of it. And this this glorious theme is all over the New Testament. Let me just show you a couple passages. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. This, This... Oh, man, no time. The work of the devil is not to keep you from knowing the content of the gospel. Because he knows the content of the gospel. James tells us that. The work of the devil is to keep you from seeing glory in the gospel. The work of the devil is to keep you from salivating over spiritual things. The work of the devil is to make you more interested in Netflix than the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. And he does a great job. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Look at one more text. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What a phrase. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not, not in the face of any prophet or angel or religious leader. Personal transformation and restoration with God. Glory can be found in no other place than in the face of Jesus Christ. You must look to Jesus Christ today if you want glory restored to your life. You can't find it anywhere else. That's what that's about. Oh, there's a need to have a church. I don't mean this church. I mean the church filled with believers who who see glory in the things they sing about and talk about and read about, who see glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the things of this world look strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It was a great song. Too bad we don't sing it anymore. Six. Don't be mad at me. We're almost done. I love Hebrews. I love the book. And there's not a better point to wrap up with than this one. Nothing else needs to be done to bring us back to God. After making purification for sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. I think it's important to remember that what would have happened, these churches would not be able to sit down like we are and say, turn to Hebrews. And out of this 82 translations that we have, let's all turn to Hebrews and we'll put it up on the screen. There's there's no book of Hebrews for them to, to read in their New Testament. There's no New Testament. And so this letter would come and somebody would stand up at the front and they would read this letter. And as this letter was read aloud in churches, the listeners would actually hear a contrast that is easily lost when we're just reading it. The listeners, Jewish listeners, raised in the tradition of the temple and synagogues and sacrifice, they would immediately hear something strange about Jesus sitting down after making purification for sins. And the reason it would sound strange is this is something that Aaron could never have done. In this very book, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, for every priest stands. I don't know what happened there. Something happened. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. And we're meant to see this, right? That, that's why he's talking about Aaron. 
Go through your Old Testament. You're working through the Bible this year? Keep at it. There's no mention anywhere in the Old Testament of a chair in the holy place. Remember when we used to sing, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who... Yeah, that's what they do. They just stand there. And the reason, the reason, that's a, a pretty good quote of scripture, that song. And the reason they would say, lift up your hands in the holy place is because when you're standing, you don't get a chance to sit down. Long about 3 a.m. in the morning, you need some, oh God, and you do wait, yeah. It's not an oversight that there's no mention of a chair. It was forbidden for the priest to sit down while offering the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And what that was designed to be is a very physical reminder that the priest's work was never done. You get it? The priest's work was an ongoing work. You don't get a coffee break. You don't sit down. You can't pull out your iPhone. the work of the priest without sitting down the work of the priest was never meant to feel finished it's like standing in line you know you're not there yet when you have to stand and our text says Jesus sat down after his death resurrection and ascension because here at church there was nothing left to do. We are being reminded because we come into church, don't we, feeling like such flops? Is it just me? Feeling like such failures? Feeling the weight of all that we wish we were and aren't? Thinking about all the room there is left for growth? seeing all the things in your heart that you're sick of and wish you had moved past. This is the kind of people we are and we come into the house of worship and we need this reminder that there is absolutely nothing that still needs to be done for us to be cleansed from our sin. Praise God. We're reminded there's nothing lacking. We're reminded there's nothing inadequate about our Lord's provision for my sin. And we need that reminder, especially when the Holy Spirit starts to convict us in a service like this. It can feel overwhelming. And the death of Jesus so long ago, can that really be all that's needed for the glory of God to begin to unfold in a broken person like myself? And this text says there is still nothing else that needs to be done. There's nothing else you need to do. There's nothing else that can be added. For my sin, for yours, look to Jesus in repentant faith. There is no one else who can pour glory into your heart. The sermon might not have been so great, but that is a great text. Is it not? That's a great text. Let's pray together.